all the man-made religions in the world tell us that what we need to do is try to earn blessings from God by our obedience. That we need to try to merit blessings from God by obeying his commands. But in the Bible, God says, that's wrong. That's impossible. For people like us who've all sinned against God to think that we can merit or deserve blessings from God by being good enough is the height of pride and presumption. It is actually sin to try to do that. What God says in the Bible that we can do and that we should do is receive. Receive God's undeserved blessings by faith. By faith. Trusting God's merciful promises, which are true for us because of Jesus, death on the cross. That's what God in his word tells us to do. And that word faith has been Paul's theme. We're going through the book of Romans. And we're in the section right now from Romans 3, 21 through chapter 4, verse 25. And Paul's passion in this section is to help us see the importance of faith. We come to God just like we sung empty-handed. Not with, why, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've got all these things I've done. Lord, look what I've done. We come as sinners empty-handed, and we trust. That's Paul's passion in this section. We can receive all of God's blessings by faith in Christ. All of his blessings, including a blessing Paul's going to mention in this passage, which you just heard Krishna read about the amazing blessing of being heirs, inheritors of the world. That's what Paul talks about here. Look at what he says in verse 13. Read it again. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So God's promise is that Abraham and his offspring will inherit the world. And we've saw last week, and we've seen for a few weeks now, that everyone who trusts Jesus Christ is an offspring of Abraham, Jew or Gentile. So all of those of you who are trusting Christ, you are descendants, offspring of Abraham, which means you will be an heir of the world. So what does that mean? You ever thought about that? This last week, did you think about how I'm an heir of the world? I hope you'll think about it more after this morning. What does it mean to be an heir of the world? This idea is found numerous times in the Bible. Some of you are probably thinking of what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, remember? Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are those who come empty-handed. The meek are those who know that they're sinful. They know they can't earn righteousness by their obedience. So they humbly trust. They have faith in God's mercy as promised in Jesus. The meek shall inherit the earth. Look at Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. The author of Hebrews says, 
long ago, he's talking about the Old Testament time period, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So God the Father has appointed Jesus as the heir, the inheritor of everything. And then look at what Paul says in Galatians 3.29. He says, and if you are Christ's, if you're joined to Jesus by faith, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs of everything, according to promise. Here's what this means. Because you are trusting God's merciful promises in Jesus, you will inherit the world. You're an heir of all things. What does that mean? The Bible teaches that at the end of history, Jesus will come back. And he will remove from the world all those who are still under the guilt of their sin because they've not bent the knee and put their trust in Jesus. They will all be removed from the world, all those who are still under the guilt of their sin. But all those who have bent the knee before Jesus, who have received Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord and as their treasure, all those of us who are trusting Christ, we will be on the earth and we will see the heavens and the earth as we know it now transformed into the new heavens and the new earth. And that's where we will be forever. And what does the Bible say about the new heavens and the new earth? The new earth will have no sin. Not, not even a speck of sin anywhere. I mean, there's so much, just no sin. The new earth will have no war. No pollution. No cancer. No hurricanes. No pain. No sadness. The new earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Just the glory of God filling this place. The book of Revelation says that God will, God's glory will be its light, and Jesus will be the lamp through whom that light shines. The new earth is going to be a perfect world, a world of perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect love. That's the, this, this new earth. That's the world you can inherit by trusting Jesus Christ. And you will inherit that world forever. So how do we inherit that? I've already told you, but Paul's going to tell us more. Okay, How do we inherit that? How do we inherit it? By faith in Christ, okay? Let's look at what Paul says. How do we become heirs of the world? Let's read verse 13 again. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So this promise does not come through the law. No one earns it or deserves it by their obedience. The world religions are wrong in saying that. 
This promise only comes to us through the righteousness of faith, is what Paul calls it here. It only comes to us as God mercifully counts our undeserving faith as perfect righteousness. Let me say that again. This is so important. It only comes to us as God mercifully counts our undeserving faith as perfect righteousness before him. And he does that through Jesus. Now, why does it have to come by faith? Look at verses 14 and 15. Paul says, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. See, the problem is that we're sinful. And what do sinful people do when they come to the law? How do sinful people respond? With sin. In one of two different ways. Some rebel against that law. No one's telling me what to do. Others, they try to earn righteousness by obeying that law. I'm going to look really good before all of you and before God. He's going to be applauding me. He needs me in heaven. I'm so amazingly righteous. One of two very different ways sinful people respond to the law, and both of those ways are sin. Both of those are described in the law as sin. That's the problem. And what happens in both of those cases, then, is that faith is null. Faith is not there. There's, there's no humbly trusting God's mercy in Christ in either of those responses, those sinful responses to the law. Faith is gone. Faith is not there. And in both cases, the promise is made void. God's promise is canceled because our sinful lack of faith brings God's wrath. No faith, the promise is stamped canceled, void. Now, the last part of verse 15 is a bit puzzling. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. What's Paul saying there? Well, it simply means if there's no law, you can't do anything wrong, right? Obvious point. If all the speed laws were gone from this country, you wouldn't get those texts anymore, you know? So sorry, pay up, okay? We'd miss those if there's no speed laws. If there are speed laws, texts, there it comes, okay? That's what happens. Paul's point is this. Yeah, if there's no law, there's no sin. God has given us his law. So we all have sinned. The law brings wrath to sinful people. We can't make ourselves righteous. Sinful people trying to obey the law. Paul's conclusions in verse 16. That is why it depends on what? Faith. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. This is amazing. If there's no faith, God's promise is canceled. But if there is faith, if we trust God's gracious promises, the promise is guaranteed. Now why? Let me picture it like this. Grace is is shaped... Uh, to attach to people who see that they're undeserving. Okay, that's, that's the shape that grace has. The problem is in our sin, we're not thinking we're undeserving, we're thinking we're deserving. And, and grace can't connect with that. Okay, there's no, there's no connecting point there. 
So trying to be righteous by our own obedience, with that pride and that trying to merit something, grace won't get attached to, to that person who's relying on their works. But faith is shaped differently. Faith knows it's undeserving, right? When you put your trust in God's merciful promises, you know, I'm undeserving. And grace is undeserved grace from God, and it, and it connects with, it attaches to faith. See that? Not, not pride and thinking I can earn from God. Grace doesn't attach to that. But when you move from pride to faith, grace attaches to that. Grace is drawn to faith. It moves towards us. And why is that so important? Grace makes the promise guaranteed. Two ways. One is that God's grace in Christ has paid for all of our sins. Past sins, present sins, future sins. So, grace attaching to faith, you are completely forgiven through Christ. Amazing. And what grace also does is it promises that God will keep you on the road to heaven all the way. You'll have ups and downs. Okay? No one is sinless, but he'll bring you back. He'll strengthen you. Everyone who has faith and receives that grace will end up in heaven. We will all walk the road all the way. Not perfectly, but pers persistently, perseveringly. So if we're all going to be on that road and we're going to arrive in heaven, and if we're all completely forgiven for all of our sins, what does that mean? It means that all of God's promises are guaranteed. That's how faith resting on grace means our promise, the promises of God are guaranteed to us. Don't you love the sound of that word, guaranteed? We like guarantees. We like guarantees that mean something, especially, right? And God's promises mean something. So the beautiful thing is, you put your trust in Christ, forgiven, promised he's going to keep, keep you walking the road all the way to heaven, and all the promises are guaranteed to you. Now with that in mind, oh, in including the promise of, of what? Inheriting the world. Don't forget that one. Powerful way to summarize them. Now, with that in mind, read verses 16 and 17. That is why it depends on what? Faith, okay? In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, this is God's promise, quote from the book of Genesis, Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he, Abraham, believed, this God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So the promise is guaranteed to us if we share in the faith of Abraham if we have faith like Abraham? Well, that raises another question. What did it mean for Abraham to have faith? What was Abraham's faith like? Let me give you the background. Remember Abraham and Sarah, they had been trying to get pregnant for decades. Many, many, many years. Think of the heartbreak and the disappointment and the heartbreak and the disappointment. And now they were well beyond childbearing years. 
Now it was humanly impossible for them to get pregnant. They knew that. But God came to Abraham and promised that he would make Abraham into a great nation. Not just have one child, but I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abraham. And Abraham, one of your offspring is going to be the Messiah, Jesus, who will bring salvation to every ethnic group in the world, Genesis 12, 3. So there's Abraham. They're completely past childbearing years. God promises, I'm going to make you a great nation. And what does Abraham do? Abraham believes God. That's what he does. Look at how Paul describes Abraham's faith in verse 17. From the previous verse, Abraham was the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Abraham believed God the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So even though it was impossible humanly for Abraham to have a child, Abraham believed God. He trusted God's promise. He put his hope in God's promise that God would give life to an almost dead husband and wife and that God would bring into existence a baby who at this point was not yet in existence. That's what it meant for Abraham to have faith. That's the kind of faith we must share in to receive God's grace and have the promises be guaranteed to us. So here's my definition of faith. Faith means trusting, very important word, all that God promises, very important word, in Christ, the most important word. Faith means trusting all that God promises in Christ. We see that in verses 18 through 21. Start with verse 18. In hope, and that means in hope in God, he believed against hope, that is, not relying on any human possibilities. So in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Isn't that amazing? In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, here's the promise, so shall your offspring be. Those last five words are from Genesis 15.5, a direct quote. Remember the setting? God had taken Abraham out to look at the stars. Okay, got in the desert, leave a desert. Look at all the stars that are there. And God says to him what? So shall your offspring be, Abraham. And Abraham placed his hope in God's promise. He believed God's promise. He trusted God's promise. And the only way that God could give sinful Abraham an undeserved promise like this is because Jesus would pay for all of Abraham's sins on the cross 2,000 years in the future. That's how it works. We're not sure how clear Abraham understood all of that. He knew about forgiveness. He knew mercy. He knew the Messiah. We're not sure how he connected all those dots. But we now in the New Testament, we can connect all the dots. We can see even more clearly how God did this. And that's why it's so crucial that our definition of faith says that it means trusting all that God promises to be to us in Christ. Most important word in the definition. 
Okay, then verse 19, Paul again emphasizes, Abraham trusted God's promise no matter how impossible it seemed. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. It's like, thanks, Paul. <laughs> Abraham knew this, is, this body's as good as dead. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. Now, let me just pause for a moment here. Abraham's faith was not perfect. Don't get that idea. None of us has perfect faith. If perfect faith is the requirement, we're all sunk, right? But Abraham never had a time when he just turned away from God. No, I'm, I'm walking away from you. I think the picture I get is he, he grew strong in faith. He didn't waver, but there were times where he said, God, strengthen me. Help me. And see, when you come before the Lord and say, strengthen my faith, help my faith, that's faith. Right? Just as much as those times when it's like, I know God's going to do it. That's faith too. Remember, a, a mustard seed of faith can move mountains. Jesus taught, right? So his faith was not perfect. So verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So faith means trusting all that God promises to be in Christ, no matter how impossible it seems, what faith is. So let me ask you this. How is your faith? How's your faith doing? Think about that. For some people, it's tempting to answer, my faith's fine. What are you talking about? I mean, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross to pay for sins. My faith is fine. There's a problem with that. I hope, I hope you'll think about this with me. The problem with that is that the demons believe what he just said he believed. The demons believe very well that Jesus is the Son of God. The demons know that Jesus died on the cross to pay for sins. They agree with those doctrines. If that's all that your faith is, I would like to appeal to you to, to think more deeply about what your faith should be. Why aren't the demons saved if they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on the cross to pay for sins? It's because they're not trusting Jesus. Is any demon trusting Jesus? No. They're not depending upon Jesus. They're not relying on Jesus. They're just agreeing with facts about Jesus, and they hate those facts. Agreeing with truths about Jesus is not the same as trusting Jesus. You can feel that, can't you? Oh, it's different. So when I ask, how's your faith? We should be thinking, am I trusting all that God promises? in Christ, no matter what. So let me ask you again, how's your faith? How's your faith doing? And don't just think, of course, it's fine. I believe, no, no, no. Are, are you trusting? Are you trusting him? Are you depending on all of his promises? Are you fighting to trust him more? Then your faith is doing good. That's what faith is. That's why the word trusting is so crucial. 
And the word promises is crucial in that definition. Faith means trusting all that God promises. God had promised Abraham many children. Abraham and Sarah, many children. And Abraham's faith meant trusting God's promise. And he did. What this means is it's crucial that we understand what has God promised us. Do we know what God has promised us? God has not promised us many children. He's not promised any of us any children, if you think about it. It's not one of his promises. Praise God he does give children. Sometimes he doesn't give children. We don't want to mix up what he's promised to individuals in the Bible that's just for them with his promises to all of God's people. And the Bible is full of promises given to all of his people. What promises has he made to all of us? I made a list here just to get you started to whet your appetite. Here's what God has promised to all those who trust Christ. He's promised to forgive all our sins. 1 John 1.9 He's promised to count our faith as perfect righteousness before him. Romans 4, verse 24. We'll see that in a moment. He's promised to satisfy our longings, our deepest longings, all of our longings, completely in him, his presence. His love, John 6, 35. To strengthen our faith through his word. There's lots of times when our faith is weak, right? I'll strengthen your faith through my word, Romans 10, 17. He's promised to forgive and restore us when we sin and turn back to him. Powerful, powerful. 1 John 1, 9. He's promised to guide our decisions as we seek him. James chapter 1, verse 5. To provide all of our needs. Not our wants, necessarily, but all of our needs. That's the most important thing, is our needs. He provides all of them. Philippians 4.19. To answer our prayers according to his loving will. Matthew 7.7-11. To comfort and strengthen us in every trial that he allows us to go through. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He promises to use every trial to bring us closer to him. Romans chapter 8, 28-30. He promises to keep us trusting him all the way to heaven. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He's promised to raise us from the dead. I shared this with my dad on the phone. John eleven twenty five. 25. I'm the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. He promises to make us heirs of the world, Romans 4, 13, and to give us everlasting joy in his presence, Psalm 16, 11. Is that what your appetite? Those are promises. Guaranteed promises for all those who in their face see how undeserving they are and then undeserved grace comes and guarantees the promises to them that's how that works let's make this a little bit more real let's think of a real life example what would i mean to to have faith i I thought let's say that this afternoon you start sniffling and coughing and the congestion's growing in your head and the energy level is diminishing in your body and you're feeling this cold flu thing coming on. You're starting to feel grumpy and you're starting to complain. I got a lot to do this next week, you know, right? Just so that what would it look like in that situation to have faith like Abraham had? Remember, faith means trusting all that God promises us in Christ. 
So we need to find specific promises in God's word that deal with that situation. Okay? The problem, though, is that at this point, too many of us keep our Bibles closed. And we just think, okay, well, it's like, you know, God, it's going to be all right, God says, and he's, he's going to take care of things, and, and it's going to be fine. The problem is, we have no idea what those words mean. Well, what does it mean it's going to be fine? What does it mean he's going to take care of it? I need to see the fine print here. What is he going to do, really? What's he going to do? And so, instead of keeping our Bibles closed and just kind of relying on vague abstractions, which really don't encourage you all that much, Let's open up our Bibles. What does he promise he'll do in regards to sickness? We need to open up our Bibles. That's where the power is. His written promises in the Word, they will change our hearts. Give us hope. So what does he promise when it comes to sickness? Okay, now, some of us have been taught that what God promises is to always heal every sickness in this life, if we just believe him. I'm sure some of you have been taught that and um, love you. And I, I want to share with you why I don't think the Bible teaches. And I'll also say, don't take my word for it. I would encourage you just to do some study of your, of your, of your own in the Bible. Just study, study this topic. This is really important. We need to be clear on what actually has he promised. But some have been taught that it is always God's will to heal in this life, based on a verse like Psalm 103, verse 2. Doesn't that say he heals all our diseases? That's exactly what it says. And he does. Guaranteed. Either in this life or in the life to come. My father was legally blind up until he died. <laughs> He's not anymore. He can see. That's what God promises, I believe. And I'd like to persuade you of that if you've been taught differently. I think this is really important. Do your own study. Now, I want to be clear God does miraculously heal the sick. We should pray for the sick. Pray for yourself when you're sick, pray for each other when we're sick. We want to be a church that prays for the sick because God miraculously heals in this life. He does. But not always. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Some kind of, a, of an affliction, some kind of a physical problem. And Paul, we're talking about Paul here. Man of faith. Man of God. Paul who raised people from the dead and healed the sick. And he prayed three times. And the word that's used there is fervent prayer. Three times that God would remove this thorn in the flesh. And what happened? God, God said, no, Paul. Paul, I'm going to bring you even more of my nearness through Christ with thorn in the flesh than you would have without it. And what does Paul say? Therefore, I will most gladly boast in my weaknesses and my sicknesses. He said, if I get more of your nearness, all right. You're the prize. I'll take it. And that passage clearly shows it's not always God's will to heal in this life. I hope you see that. Study that. 2 Corinthians 12, like verses 7 through 
12, somewhere right in there. I also thought of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul, remember he says, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Remember that verse? Well, what does it mean that our outer man is decaying? It means our outer man is decaying. It means you're getting physical problems. I'm, I'm getting older. I'm feeling it, okay? Which clearly shows that Paul understood that God doesn't always heal all of our difficulties, physical ailments, diseases in this life. He often does, but not always. He doesn't always. You might ask, but doesn't the Bible say, by his stripes we are healed? Isaiah 53, verse 5. Yes, it does say that. That is a beautiful promise. Because every blessing has been purchased for us through Jesus' death on the cross. Every blessing, healing, forgiveness, eternal life, Every blessing has been purchased for us through the cross, but the question is, do we receive all of those blessings that were purchased on the cross in this life? And if you stop and think about it, the answer is obviously, well, no. Anybody receive eternal life in this life? No, this is this life. That's the life to come. We're all going to die. But then we will receive that blood-bought gift of eternal life. So yes, the cross purchased healing for all of our diseases. Praise Jesus. By his stripes, we are healed either in this life or in the life to come. But we will all be healed in the new heavens and the new earth. And some of us will be healed now, according to God's will, as he deems best. Now again, you do your own study. I'd love to interact with you more about this. I think this is important because I think that because I believe it's not always God's will to heal, that means when somebody in our body is sick, we don't immediately think, well, they didn't pray hard enough or they didn't believe strongly enough. We say what James says. We want to come alongside you and help you count it all joy when we encounter various trials. James chapter 1, verse 2 and following. We want to be a church where when you are going through sickness or trials, you know you are welcomed here and loved here because every believer goes through trials and sickness. But now do your own study if you have different convictions about that point. I'd be glad to have coffee with you and talk to you more about it. Send me an email. Okay, but here's the question. And in light of that, what should we do when we get sick? There you are. Your, your congestion's growing. You're sneezing. You're coughing. You're feeling miserable. You're starting to complain a little bit. You know, you're, anyway, you know how it is. I won't go into any more detail. It's grim. What should you do? Find and trust God's promises. Let me give you some examples. Trust Romans 10, 17, that God will use his word to strengthen your faith. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to grumble. I'm not seeing how this could possibly be bringing me any blessing at all. I'm just not seeing it. Help me to trust you, Lord. Strengthen my faith. Read the Bible. The promise of Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Trust Romans 10, 17. Trust Psalm 91, 15, that God will be with you in trouble. 
Okay, God, you're, you're with me right now. You've not abandoned me. You are here. You are loving me. You are caring for me. You are here in complete control. And you're just saying, trust me, trust me, trust me. Trust Matthew 7, 7 through 11, that God, as you pray, will either give you exactly what you're asking for or something even better. Better because it's going to bring you even more of his nearness. So pray for healing. Pray for healing. Knowing that God is either going to give you exactly the healing you're asking for or something even better than that. Better because it's going to bring you even more of his nearness. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Trust Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I need to be strengthened now, Christ. I'm feeling so weak. Strengthen me. Help me. Meet me. He will. Trust Philippians 4.19 that God will meet all of your needs in this. He's going to raise you up at exactly the right time. He will use this sickness to draw you even closer to him. He'll provide you all the wisdom that you need. He'll take care of what your kids need this week. What work has to, has to happen at work. He will take care of all of your needs. Trust him. Guaranteed promises. And I could just go on and on, but do you get the idea? Open up your Bible to the written promises in God's word and trust them. Pray over them. Ask him to help you trust them. Read other passages that show you that God will be faithful to do those promises. Read about the cross to remind you that this right grace will connect with faith. I'll be completely forgiven, carried to heaven. The promises are all guaranteed. Open up the Bible and learn and trust the actual written promises. How many promises in the Bible do you know right now? Charles Spurgeon said, promises are the ground that faith walks on. How much ground does your faith have to walk on? Only the promises you know, right? So let's learn God's promises. Okay. That's what it means to have faith like Abraham. Trusting all that God promises us in Christ. That's what faith means. Now, Paul's not done, though, yet. He wants to make sure that we see the importance of faith. So he answers one last question. One more time. Why is faith so important? Verses 21 through 25. Look at what he says. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15, 6. And then look at what he says in verse 23. This is amazing. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, New Testament believers. For ours also, it, namely righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Now don't miss this. Genesis 15, 6, first book of the Bible, thousands of years before Jesus. Abraham believed God and it, his undeserving faith, was counted as righteousness. That's what Genesis 15, 6 says. And those words were not written just for Abraham's sake. They were written for the sake of you and me in the New Testament. 
Those are for us. When Moses wrote those words, the Holy Spirit was having him write those words for you and for me to read and to, to trust. Because those words show us that when we believe God, when we trust all that God promises us in Christ, we can be assured that he is counting that undeserving faith as perfect righteousness. We can be assured of that. That's why faith is so important. Perfect righteousness. Undeserving faith. He counts it as perfect righteousness. Now, how is it possible for my undeserving faith to be counted as righteousness? Paul just wants to review this one more time, make sure we don't get it. It's because of Jesus. Verse 25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He paid for all of our sins. So you can be completely forgiven. And he was raised to confirm that his death paid for all of our sins. God accepted his death as payment. That's why God raised him from the dead. So we can be therefore counted as perfectly righteous. And so, because of Jesus, delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification, because of Jesus, God counts your undeserving faith as perfect righteousness, which guarantees all of God's promises to you. All of God's promises, including the promise that you will be an heir of the world. Guaranteed. That's why faith is so important. So, Grace Church, live by faith. Walk by faith. Work by faith. Be sick by faith. Do everything by faith. And you'll be assured because of Jesus, perfect righteousness before God. I'm assured of having perfect righteousness before God. Because that's what God's promised.